With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson. Good morning, and thank you for joining us this morning on the AgNet News Hour. Coming up later, rice growers are told to look out for the winged water primrose. We'll have more on that, but we start today at KettleCon, the Kettle Industry Convention, which just wrapped up in Orlando. Here's Chuck Zimmerman. At CattleCon 2024, I'm visiting with Dan Halstrom, U.S. Meat Export Federation, and you're the CEO there. Dan, good to see you again. So here at the conference, we'd love to find out uh, what's new. That's kind of been our mantra is what's what's new with uh, exports in this case and you know, maybe looking back a little bit and, and a little bit forward, too. Yeah, no, great. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, beef exports for 2023, uh, we're only through 11 months. We'll get data here soon for December, but we're going to be down a bit. We're down about 13, 12, 13 percent, um, which on the surface sounds negative, but it's probably still our second largest year ever. Uh, we had such a big year in 2022. So I would say the highlights are really twofold. Um, number one, uh, the, the drag has been in Asia, uh, specifically food service. Uh, there's by no means is food service back to normal post-COVID, uh, especially in Japan, especially in uh, China, and even a little bit in Korea. Um, You've got to keep in mind that um, a year ago in December, uh, they were just coming out of their emergency shutdown on COVID in China. So they're only about a year removed from that. And uh, the, the consumers in Asia have been relatively... Um, muted in terms of their response, and there's still a tendency of eating at home. That's changing, though. We're starting to see tourism pick up. This is the good news. Tourism is picking up, um, and uh, I think 2024 it could very well be a tailwind. So food service recovery is one focus in Asia. And I think the other one, uh, on a good news side, as we come out of 2023, we have very good numbers going into Latin America, specifically Mexico, but also you've got Central America looking pretty good in certain countries on beef and uh, and in uh, <clears throat> places like Peru and South America. So uh, I think there's some momentum on the Latin American side. How about when it comes to the whole uh, supply chain things that we've gone through that was kind of a, a horror story for a while there. Right. How has that affected things, and what's the outlook for that? Well, yeah, well, the, the real shock was post-COVID here. You know, the global 2021 uh, supply chain shock from COVID, uh, thankfully most of that's behind us globally. Um, now, that being said, we do have some disruptions, you know, in, in, in Israel and in Gaza, uh, the Red Sea now. So that does hold some potential. We're already seeing some supply chain uh uh, delays and, and closures, which, if it goes on for any length of time, could impact the full supply chain. But, but I think that's relatively minor compared to what we went through uh, with COVID. What else are um, you talking to cattlemen here about when it comes to the work that you're doing on their behalf? Well, I think the, the third phase uh, of what we're really focused on is uh, some of these underdeveloped regions of the world are showing, all of a sudden, are showing quite a bit of potential for growth. Um, you know, regions like uh, Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Philippines, even Malaysia, uh, these are big, big population centers with relatively low penetration so far of U.S. beef. And um, that being said, 
the business that is being done is growing. So the percentage rate of growth is impressive. So that's one area of the world. The other, you know, we've been talking about it for quite a while is Africa. You know, Africa, it's a valid beef variety meat meat market today, uh, starting to take small, small quantities of, uh, of muscle-cut beef. And uh, I think there will be some uh, increased growth there in the future very soon. All right. Before we close, anything else um, you want to touch on that we didn't? Yeah. The, the one thing I might also add is that, uh, you know, obviously with beef production here down 5% this year and probably going to be down again next year, one of the focuses that we're really looking at is maximizing the value of that carcass. So, uh, for example, uh, the beef round primal, for the most part, is very underutilized, very undervalued. And, and, uh, and for the most part, availability. So while we may not have enough short plates, we may not have enough chucks, we definitely have enough rounds. And so this is something we, we started this a year ago, knowing that we would be in a short supply situation. So working with some of these cuts that certain countries like Korea, Japan, or Mexico maybe aren't so familiar with, uh, we're, cha- we're working hard to get that changed, and, and we're seeing the benefit of it. Well, thank you very much, Dan, for okay. visiting with me here. We're at CattleCon 2024. I'm Chuck Zimmerman reporting. Last winter's abundant snowpack and subsequent runoff continues to bode well for some western water reservoirs this winter. Rod Bain reports. The summary for the western water season at the end of January. Mostly good news, but we do have some problem areas still lurking. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says first. From last winter's wet season, we still see reservoirs in reasonably good shape across much of the western U.S. If you look at the 11 western states, nine of them have statewide reservoir storage in January that is above normal for this time of year. With exceptions in New Mexico and Washington state. As for water reservoir storage levels for California... The reservoir situation is good. In January, we see storage at 117% of average for this time of year, almost two-thirds of capacity. And compare that to one year ago when we saw storage at just 77% of average and 42% of capacity. Yet the Colorado River system is still dealing with a chronic generational drought. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Don't forget if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you just want to listen to the news at a different time, you can subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. Just search for the Agnet News Hour on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour and it's available for Apple and Android devices. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson and we will be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Agnet News Hour. In today's international spotlight, legislation to protect Canada's supply-managed agricultural sector has now entered its final stages. Dennis Guy shares more from Canada. Last summer, the House of Commons in Ottawa voted to pass a bill that would legally protect Canada's domestic market for supply-managed agricultural sectors and safe from any further trade negotiations. Throughout the political debates, the sharp division between dairy eggs and poultry sectors, and the export-oriented grain, beef, and pork sectors was evident. But in late June, federal politicians voted, passed, and approved Bill C-282 by a wide margin. Since then, the bill has moved on to the Senate, where it has now passed two of three necessary votes required to receive royal assent to make it law. Following that final step, expected to take place this spring, 
any further access to Canada's supply-managed domestic market would be protected under federal law. International trade lawyer Lawrence Harmon believes that such a potential hardline stance will cause Canadian trade negotiators major problems in most current and upcoming trade negotiations. The House of Commons passed Bill C-282 that Canadian negotiators will not give one iota on the supply managed protected sector and it is going to cause us further difficulties in terms of our trade relations with other countries. Advocates for Bill C-282 have repeatedly said that Canada is justified in protecting its supply-managed sectors. Examples have included countries like Japan, which has never offered up access to outside rice imports, and the United States, which has been steadfast in its refusal to put access to the American sugar market on the trade table. However, Dan Darling, president of the Canadian Agri-Food Trade Alliance, with members representing about 90% of Canada's agri-food exports says that protecting the supply-managed sector under law sets a dangerous precedent. We're all well aware that every country has some commodities that are off limits, but there's nothing written in stone saying that they won't allow some inroads. But when you put it into legislation or law, saying that we're just not going to talk about trade on dairy or chicken. This is precedent setting. We had our legal side look into it, and there is no other country in the world that has anything like this. Reporting from Canada, I'm Dennis Guy. That's today's International Spotlight. Now here's Will Jordan with the Livestock Report. In today's Livestock News, a California cattle producer has received national recognition as an advocate of the beef industry. Ali Fender of Southern California was recognized as the Beef Checkoff Advocate of the Year during the Cattle Industry Convention in Orlando, Florida. I visited with Ali to learn more about this award. Yeah, so I'm very honored to be selected as Beef Advocate of the Year from NCBA. It's been a really amazing journey this year. I actually was a part of the Trailblazer program that's also funded by the Beef Checkoff and NCBA, so that has been a real um, exhilarating experience. I've learned a lot, and that's honestly why I'm here today, I think, because without that program, I would not have been able to tell my story and our story as a cattle-producing community and I have everything to thank for the trailblazer program so that's my new title I guess you can say so it's been really fun to be able to share our story and continue that forward. Allie shared more on her background. Yeah so um, a little bit of background on my story is uh, I am actually a fourth generation cattle producer. I had my family well my family immigrated over here from Switzerland in the 1920s and they came to help out on dairy operations with their cousins and things of that nature and over time it kind of transitioned into a beef operation because the dairy business got a little bit tough in the 90s and then um, beef was kind of the way to go for for us at that time and in 2014 my dad had gifted my husband and I 10 bread heifers as a wedding gift so that's what started flying up ranch and we kind of differentiated in a way my dad runs a cow-calf mixed breed operation whereas Bryce my husband Bryce and I decided that we wanted to market our beef to the community and we also implemented black Angus genetics and have that influence and really take genetics um, as like a way to excel our our beef end product so that's been a really fun experience for us Uh, we've been doing a lot of geeking out on different bulls and genetics and embryos and AI techniques and all these things. So it's been like a really 
unique time for us because we're learning a lot, even though I've been in the industry for a long time. It's a, it's a totally new world. Advocating should be important to all producers. Allie shares more on how to get involved. I think staying in your circle of what you know and and what you're an expert at is something that is very valuable. Um, everyone within the industry has something that they're very knowledgeable about, and I think that's something that people need to at least start with. And you know, from there you can expand on and learn about other sectors in the industry. But starting with what you know is, I think, valuable and also making that connection with somebody from outside the industry in some level. For example, I'm a mother and I also really value health. So I connect a lot with other mothers that are from San Diego or from some other rural or um, urban community or something like that, because that's something that we have in common. And if you can bridge the story with commonalities that you already have with other people, that's a great way to kind of share the story and continue sharing like our story as beef producers as a whole. I'm Will Jordan for Agnet West. Keep feeding the world. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be back in just a moment. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have today's This Land of Hours report. But first, more of the day's agriculture news. Here's Brian German. Sales account manager for AgroLiquid Dylan Rogers joins us today to provide an overview of Crop Nutrition Week 2024 and how to participate and be entered to win some prize packs. So this will be AgroLiquid's second year of doing Crop Nutrition Week. Basically, it's a it's an online virtual event, and the idea is to to connect farmers with our agronomy experts and other growers for valuable information that may help them in their field and uh, achieve their goals. And the theme for this year's Crop Nutrition Week is Elevate Every Acre. And basically, we're talking about ways to elevate every acre through data-driven decision-making. You can visit a website. It's www.cropnutritionweek.com, and it breaks down uh, the topics by each day. This will be February 5th through the 9th. Um, So you can jump on that website. It'll break down each topic and uh, you kind of go from there. And once you get online and sign up to to register for the Crop Nutrition Week, I think there's three prize packages, everything from kind of Yeti coolers to some uh, cornhole boards, uh, some DeWalt tools, and also a Craftsman uh, work cabinet. There's a Naval Orange Worm Integrated Pest Management Calculator for Almond Production. UC Cooperative Extension Specialist Brittany Goodrich described how growers can use the tool. The calculator really allows you to compare this potential new IPM program and there will be increased costs, but then you're also going to have increased revenues due to the lower damage rates, which increases your yield and also potentially gets you a price premium on your almonds. And so you can kind of use this calculator to compare, you know, the increased costs with the increased revenues and see which IPM program is potentially going to make the most economic sense. And you can find it by going to our cost and return studies website, coststudies.ucdavis.edu. And if you click on pest management calculators, you can find a link to that navel orange worm IPM calculator. Deer and Company has revealed the participants in the 2024 Startup Collaborator Program aimed at fostering collaboration with innovative startups to benefit customers. The selected companies include Constell R utilizing satellites for precise land service temperature and water measurement. Geminos, an AMI firm focusing on causality for improved decision making. SB Quantum, a quantum sensing company specializing in navigation with a novel quantum magnetometer. Fermata Energy, a leader in vehicle to everything bi-directional charging. 
GoFlux, a Brazil-based logistics company providing digital solutions for freight transactions, and Cloudscape Labs, a production management software firm offering job site visibility for construction teams to meet production cost and safety targets. The John Deere Startup Collaborator program was launched in 2019 and seeks to explore new ways to unlock value for customers and enhance industry solutions. The U.S. Department of Agriculture is inviting applications for its Value-Added Producer Grants program aimed at assisting farmers and ranchers in expanding their products and exploring new markets. Eligible applicants include independent producers, agricultural groups, cooperatives, and producer-based business ventures. Approximately $31 million is available for the program with a 100% cost-share match requirement. Funds can be used for planning activities and working capital expenses related to value-added agricultural product production and marketing. Electronic applications will be accepted at grants.gov through April 11th, and paper applications will need to be postmarked by April 16th. Awards ranging from $75,000 for planning grants to $250,000 for working capital grants support activities such as product development, marketing, and income enhancement. Winged primrose willow continues to be an issue of concern for rice growers. Rice farm advisor Whitney Brim DeForest described what growers will want to be on the lookout for. The winged uh, water primrose is actually one that we've had for a while. I think it was first spotted in 2015, timing somewhere around there. And it has only been found in Butte County at this point in time. But it's along irrigation canals, so it could easily move. And it does look quite a bit like our native primrose, so it's a little bit hard to tell it apart. But the you know, invasive one is very tall and sort of sticks up more straight in the air, whereas our native one is like a spreading, creeping one across the water. So they do look a little bit different, but they all have yellow flowers, and so they they do look very similar. We talked about it a lot a few years ago, and then it kind of fell off the radar, but it's still there, so just wanted people to be aware and on the lookout. CDFA's Fertilizer Research and Education Program has allocated $1.4 million for six projects aimed at enhancing nitrogen and irrigation management practices for California growers. The projects funded through the 2023 cycle include optimizing potassium fertilization in almond and pistachio orchards, estimating mineralization and nitrogen utilization in sweet potatoes and processing tomatoes, improving nitrogen and potassium management in almond orchards using hulls and shells, studying nitrogen movement in Central Valley irrigated lands, promoting no-till planting of rice for water conservation, and facilitating grower adoption of cover crop nitrogen scavenging on the Central Coast. Each project focuses on developing innovative strategies, conducting experiments, and enhancing modeling tools to improve nutrient management, water conservation, and compliance with environmental protection programs. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Thanks, Brian. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back. We now continue our coverage of CattleCon 2024. Here's Chuck Zimmerman once again. I'm at CattleCon 2024, and I have with me Samantha Wirth, who uh, works with NCBA and in the area of sustainability. So why don't you, first of all, Samantha, tell us about yourself and the position that you're in. Sure. So great to be here. Uh, I'm Sam Worth. I'm the Senior Director of Sustainability with National Cattlemen's. Uh, I've been in this role about two years prior to that. Um, I did a lot of research. I was at UC Davis and did my bachelor's, master's, and PhD all in animal biology um, and beef cattle sustainability specifically. 
you know, the word sustainability means a lot to different people. For NCBA, how do, how do you define that uh, to know what kind of goals and things that you want to uh, achieve? So at NCBA, we define sustainability for the U.S. beef industry as being a socially responsible, environmentally sound, and economically viable product that prioritizes people, planet, and um, animals. So we really think about it as this whole encompassing idea around continuous improvement and what are the things that we're doing today that help to not only provide uh, provide opportunities for producers, but also help to enhance the greater public. So I know, it, you know, sustainability has been a, a part of what NCBA does for, for many years, but um, right now, I know you come up with plans and, uh, you know, targets that you want to hit. What, what are some of the things that you're working on now that you hope to accomplish? So a big focus for us right now on the environmental side of sustainability, we set a goal um, back in 2021 around all of sustainability for NCBA and our climate goal specifically is to demonstrate climate neutrality of beef production by 2040. Uh, So our focus there is really how do we help support producers to uh, implement novel practices or uh, better management strategies on their land and with their resources to help to continue to improve and essentially do more with less. And that directly ties into how we can achieve that climate neutrality goal. So really focused in on how do we manage the land, how do we manage our resources, and what are the opportunities there for producers to really succeed. There are um, other organizations and people that... um have maybe not the kind of uh, same definition or maybe they just don't have the same kind of uh, data information or to understand this but when it comes to you know raising cattle and trying to achieve these goals uh, has there been um, a need to try to really reach out to help people understand this who really just think they know but they don't (laughs) yeah that is a a topic we run into quite a bit um as as many producers know the topic of sustainability around uh beef production is highly nuanced so there's a lot of uh in outside perspective is really focused in on that carbon piece but we have such a great story to share beyond carbon right um thinking about how we manage our land and biodiversity elements that we're enhancing through grazing cattle um the byproducts we're able to use in our feed yard systems to be able to to minimize waste at a greater scale and then produce this high quality food product um so that's an area that we really work on communicating out is, is sharing that story of how what are we actually doing with our with our resources and why does it matter for everyone else. So how do you um, work with your members then when it comes to the goals that you have? Uh, are, what are some of the ways that you can get them to understand what they can do in order to help accomplish these goals? We have a couple of really great partnerships that we've implemented over the past couple years. Um, 
uh, longer than a couple years, uh, NCBA was a founding member of the U.S. Roundtable for Sustainable Beef. Uh, that is an area that we work with heavily to help get resources around sustainability out to producers. So they have a suite of um, modules online and different elements that producers can go and learn uh, for free about sustainability. What does it mean? They can learn about other industry or further down the supply chain. What are the issues there? What does it mean for a producer? Um, could kind of help demystify some of the pressures that producers can feel um, when this sustainability topic comes up. Uh, we also partner with Trust in Beef, which is a um, division of Farm Journal, and they've been doing a lot to support uh, the uptake and implementation of grazing management plans and provide some key resources around animal safety, animal welfare um, through our BQA program at NCBA um, and, and many, many other elements that we were really proud to be partnered on. Before we close, is there anything else about uh, what you're doing uh, with sustainability that we didn't touch on? There are a lot of opportunities to get engaged in the sustainability conversation today. And I think my, my closing thought and uh, kind of call to action to folks would be to get involved, to ask the questions um, and, and look into ways that you can be showcasing what you're doing because your stories matter and, and we, need, we need to be sharing them and showing the world what U.S. beef production has to offer. All right. Well, thank you very much, Sam, for visiting with me here and talking sustainability with NCBA here at CattleCon 2024. I'm Chuck Zimmerman reporting. The nation's drought area is going down. That's coming up on this line of ours. Significant storminess in January equated to dramatic reductions in drought coverage during the month. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says over 23.5% of the country was covered by drought as of January 30th. That is down 9.5 percentage points from what we saw on January 2nd when drought coverage was just shy of 33%. That also is down from a recent peak of slightly more than 40% of the country in drought as recently as early October of 2023. Yet most notable. That 23.5% of the country in drought, that is the lowest U.S. drought coverage since early June of 2023. Similar stories are noted for extreme and exceptional drought, D3 and D4 coverage reaching their lowest levels since last June. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. This is the Agnet News Hour, and we will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. For today's featured interview, I'm talking with USDA Undersecretary for Marketing and Regulatory Programs and fifth generation California farmer, Jenny Lester Moffitt. We're talking about new USDA programs for specialty crops. So, we wanted to talk about specialty crops this morning. Tell me what is new and what USDA is doing for specialty crops. Yeah, Sabrina, thank you for having me here today uh, to talk about some of the challenges and opportunities facing the specialty crops industry. So USDA in the fall launched a specialty crops competitiveness initiative. This is really aimed at enhancing and partnering with the specialty crop industry in across the USDA to make sure, first, the resources that USDA has for producers are, um, are pulled together in one place, that so producers have one-stop shop to, to learn more about all the resources we have, but then also to hear from producers about how our resources and continue into the future to better serve specialty crop producers. I'll just say, first off, what are specialty crops? Um, specialty crops are things like fruits, their vegetables, their nuts, flowers, and nursery products are part of that as well. 
So that means things like apples, potatoes, blueberries, of course, tart cherries, and um, and many different things that are grown around the nation. Specialty crops are things that we see on our plate each and every day and and are really healthy and delicious and that's an important part of American agriculture. Absolutely. And so I report a lot on specialty crops and there in the past has not been a huge focus on providing access to programs for specialty crops like there has been for a lot of, you know, for the other crops like the soybeans and wheat. So with doing this, what is the, what is the hope for your final outcome with providing these programs? Yeah, our hope is to continue to ensure that specialty crop producers remain competitive and can continue to improve their sustainability and profitability of their operations. This is really about a number of initiatives that USDA has launched in this administration to um, ensure that our programs increase competition for producers of all sizes. We're working to help ensure that producers can get fair prices for their products and have more markets, both domestic and international, to sell their products to. So the Specialty Crop Competitiveness Initiative is the first of its kind at USDA, um, and it is really designed to be a whole-of-USDA approach to support specialty crop producers. So that is all of us at USDA coming together, recognizing that across our different agencies at the department, we touch on and support specialty crop producers, whether that is things through crop insurance designed for specialty crop producers to research, to market and promotion opportunities. And I think that's really important because specialty crops have unique challenges. Specialty crops are... Um, certainly have different pest challenges for their crop and then, of course, across the country, too. So pest challenges that can be just devastating to the crop. Of course, weather-related and climate-related challenges, whether it's too much heat, too early frost, um, all of those different things. Hailstorms are different challenges that producers have, um, as well as market access and making sure that specialty crop producers have high-value markets so that we're bringing more of that food dollar back to the family farm. You know, and just this week, I was actually at a fruit summit, and I was speaking with a researcher there um, who is researching a very specific part of, of fruit and how to keep it protected, and it's actually the fruit cuticle, which is part of the skin. And we discussed the importance of research for specialty crops, for um, you know, fruit specifically, which was what he was studying, but... What's included for research in these initiatives? Yeah, absolutely. So we're doing direct research at USDA through the Agricultural Research Services. We're also funding research in partnership with industry and research institutions. And so on earlier this week, on Monday, I was able to join Senator Stabenow in Michigan to announce the specialty crop block grant funding for this year. It's $72.9 million. And the program is in partnership with the State Department of Agriculture, and it's, the aim is to enhance the competitiveness of specialty crops. And it funds research, it funds education, and it funds market promotion for specialty crops. And you're on the research piece, that is such an important part. So you talked about, you know, different challenges. So there are challenges, of course, related to, and what I heard from producers earlier this week in Michigan, things like food safety challenges, making sure that we can continue to grow and produce food, also addressing food safety issues. Um, I heard things like 
new cultivar development, new varieties um, to be developed that uh, are more resilient to different weather-related challenges that we'll have, um, that we have now and will continue to have into the future. I heard things like um, uh, production research, right, mechanization, new technologies uh, to be able to uh, address some of the, the labor issues that we have across the country um, so that we're able to keep the same workforce uh, but be able to grow production with the same workforce doing more mechanization, more automation. Uh, we certainly saw that in some of the packing houses in Michigan as well. So those are just a few pieces of resource uh, research that's being done. There are many different pest issues and disease issues that are facing specialty crop producers. And so we partner and fund a lot of research that dovetails along with that. I also report in Arizona, Florida, Alabama, and Georgia, which are also specialty crop states. And I'm wondering, are you going to be able to make any visits to any of those states? Anything planned coming up or anything that listeners in those areas should know about specifically? Yeah. In December, I was in Arizona and that was did a roundtable with producers there. Heard a lot about, certainly labor was a big thing. We talked a lot about food safety. Um, and um, and then we also talked a lot about water, right? Um, and, and I think that's a big issue in Arizona. And how do we maximize our irrigation, continue to be able to um, have farmers be maintain their productivity as well as sustainability in their operations? Um, we heard a lot about how important crop insurance is and how important crop insurance tailored towards specialty crop producers is. So those are some of the things that I heard. Uh, the deputy secretary was able to travel to Florida, and she met with researchers there last week and, um, and learned about some of the research that is happening in Florida for specialty crop producers. We'll also be traveling to California later this month to meet with specialty crop producers there as well. So you guys are covering a, a broad area, just like our news does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah, we're and this is a whole of yeah, this is a whole of department approach. So the deputy secretary, uh, myself, undersecretary Taylor, um, who of course oversees our, our trade and foreign affairs, as well as undersecretary Shavonda Jacobs Young with research and economics, and undersecretary Bonnie. Um, as well over farm production and conservation. So we are, um, we recognize that specialty crop producers have a myriad of issues that span the department. And so we wanted to make sure that our department is really um, taking a one-stop shop approach for specialty crop producers. Yeah. And, you know, I know we're about out of time and you kind of just answered my last question, but my my question was, if you wanted to expand on it, tell me about the benefits of bringing together so many departments to work on specialty crop issues. Yeah, USDA has so many different resources, and it's important that we across the department are working together as we do, um, but also making sure that we have um, collective resources available for producers. So we have just developed a resource directory specific for specialty crop producers and researchers to make sure that our USDA services and resources are available. That's online at usda.gov backslash specialty dash crops. We're also really interested in hearing, hence why we've had these roundtables, but we also have an open public comment period open to hear from the specialty crop industry about how our work that we're doing to support specialty crop producers, how the programs that we currently have can continue to support specialty crop producers. 
And so that also is available online. You folks can go onto that website, usda.gov backslash specialty dash crop. And in, through March 8th, provide public comment to us on our programs and how we can continue to design our programs in a way that meets the needs of producers. Well, thank you so much for your time. I do appreciate the call and, and all of the work that you guys are doing. Great. Thank you. Once again, that was USDA Undersecretary for Marketing and Regulatory Programs, Jenny Lester Moffitt. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be right back. You're listening to the Agnet News Hour. Now for more news. The Rural Energy for America program is helping thousands of farmers save millions of dollars while producing more clean energy. Gary Crawford has more. The 2008 Farm Bill took a couple of farm-level energy programs, combined them to create the Rural Energy for America program, REAP for short, and by 2010, then, Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack had begun to go around the country introducing this new program to reporters and producers and explaining how it would work. What Congress has directed USDA to do is to make available resources to farmers to first and foremost audit their activities on farm uh, to determine if there are steps that could be taken by uh, individual farm families to convert Uh, to renewable energy sources and to move away from a reliance on fossil fuel. Once the audits are finished, then they can make application to the USDA for additional resources to convert their operation. So now let's fast forward 14 years. Tom Vilsack, still the Agriculture Secretary, and the Rural Energy for America program is still there, still going very strong, helping more and more farmers pay for individualized renewable energy projects on their farms. Today we're announcing uh, an expansion of opportunity in that space. More awards, more projects, and Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack still traveling the country talking about the REAP program. He was in Salt Lake City a few days ago telling the American Farm Bureau Federation Convention that the USDA has already funded over 4,800 REAP projects. And we're announcing 650 additional uh, projects being awarded uh, in 42 states, about $150 million to expand that opportunity. It's going to help lower costs for farmers all across the United States. But Vilsack said in many cases, these are more than just cost-saving projects. It also creates the opportunity as farmers improve uh, renewable energy opportunities and increase the amount of energy that's produced on their farm, they can take that excess energy and working with their neighbors, potentially work with their REC to create power purchasing agreements and yet another income source that doesn't exist today that will exist in the future. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. That's today's top agriculture news. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Brian German and Sabrina Halverson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.